So, hi, John. Yes. The, the most important question is, what was your first computer and what was your first Hello World? So, the first computer I owned was a Commodore 64. And mm -hmm. the first computer I used was a TRS-80. So, it, it means uh, uh, you owned C64 and you didn't use it? No, it means my uh, I learned my first computer class was in high school. Ah, okay. And that was... Uh, Computers 101, which we called Arcade 101. I don't know if you could hear this, but you'd always hear this in the background, which yeah. means somebody was playing a game during the middle of class. <laughs> Winter Olympics, right? So, uh, yeah, that was uh, what were we were playing. Like someone had a, a head defender and asteroids and stuff like that, right? Um, okay. So yeah, so so TRS-80 was was my first computer experience. Um, my first personally owned computer was the Commodore 64. Okay, and where was it? Somewhere in Silicon Valley, or? No, I lived in the Chicago area. Oh, okay. Actually, okay. Yeah. And were computer common in this, at school back then, or was something special? So what's? Definitely special, um, because they were quite expensive um, back in the day. Um, well, for. Uh, you know, the TRS 80s, right? Which was actually pretty popular at the time. And even um, owning a computer was kind of limited among, you know, just various, like, really geeky tech people. Mm -hmm. And I remember it, at the time it was $200. And the VIC 20, which was the lower end version that Commodore sold, was $120. But if you map that to inflation, right, we could pop up an inflation calculator, right? The thing was probably five or six hundred bucks, which was, if not more, which was really a stretch for my parents. So it took a lot of convincing um, for, I think, Christmas for them to get me uh, the, the Commodore 64. Okay. And um, so you saw the computer first time at school. So you had the first contact with the computer. And you liked that immediately? Yep. Or you, you were. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, uh, liked it immediately. Yep. Uh, it was all basic, right? It was whatever the TRS-80 basic was. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Commodore 64 had its own basic. And, you know, I didn't have, you know, back then computers and peripherals were really expensive. So I mentioned, you know, it was kind of tough for my parents to get me the computer, but they invested a lot. And um, it obviously paid off, but I didn't have you know, any way to store anything. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't have course. modems. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I, I, I get all my information from like Commodore 64 magazine, right? I'd pick up at the local borders or, or Barnes and Noble at the time. Mm -hmm. So that's how I learned. Yeah. Um, but still interesting to me. So you, you got a TRS 80 at school and uh, there was, mm -hmm. I assume there was some kind, you know, of algorithm go going on, teaching algorithms or, you know, A plus B equals C or something and uh, with uh, some input and screen and output. And uh, and you already liked that. So the question is why I liked, you know, the experience with computer. So what was it? Was it like, you know, um, related to a movie or was it you, you just, I don't know. So why you like, you know, to type in stuff and you see black and white output. So what was why was it so exciting to you? Um, I just think I was a more technically oriented person. So I was I was good at math. I was good at creating things, um, you know, from like an engineering perspective. 
Okay. Right. Doing lots of hands-on creating, creating things from when I was a kid. So while this wasn't, you know, necessarily hands-on engineering type stuff, um, you could still create things. And I was pretty technical. So for whatever reason, I'll be honest, that, that's a good question. I don't recall exactly why I, I liked it, but I did. Okay, cool. So, um, and then you really wanted to have your own C64, right? So uh, you got it for Christmas. Yep. And what was your yep. first serious program you wrote? Because back then there was no Hello World. So funny, funny story. I started with ZX Spectrum and I think... The first time I heard about Hello World was if I studied computer science. So someone wrote on 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 a blackboard, uh, "Hello World," and I say, "Why are you writing this?" It's like you don't know Hello World. It's like no, I never heard about that. So what's that? I say, okay, um, this is like you know the first thing you do with a programming language. I said, this is completely stupid. But <laughs> so so what what was your first serious you know or serious uh, more sophisticated uh, thing beyond uh, Hello World you wrote on your C sixty four. Um, I would, I would, I, I don't recall what I did in basic, um, because early on it would mainly be typing in applications from the Commodore 64 magazine and modifying them, right? Change the color of the background, um, you know, do various things and modifying other examples where I actually got to creating stuff, um, After I liked it so much, I went out and I bought um, an assembler, right? Um, so I started writing assembly code. And my first, you know, if you want to call it serious app, um, <laughs> okay, serious but not serious, right? I, yeah. The assembler code was talking about how to um, write self-modifying code. Oh, wow. So... Yeah, so it's like, oh, this is cool. So I started writing all sorts of self-modifying code and figured out pretty quickly that's that's not a good idea. But with, it was fun. With 60, C64? Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is actually incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the Commodore 64 is really an underrated kind of, um, you know, beginner machine. It had a super good sound chip. So I remember, actually, the one thing I do remember doing was programming the sound chip. It was called SID. Mm -hmm. I think it was sound inter uh, interface device, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and it was pretty advanced. So I remember it, it was all peaks and pokes and basic, right, yeah. at, at the time. So so it was, so I was just, you know, peeking and poking through through basic to, to play around with the SID chip. So, yeah. um, you know... The, the the challenge I had is everything I did, probably for a year, if not two years, is I had no permanent storage device, mm -hmm. right? I didn't have a tape drive, didn't have um, a hard drive. So m most of what I did was, you know, um, uh, you know ephemeral. I'd just go away, and mm -hmm. the next time I turned on the computer, mm -hmm. um, I'd have to start over again. Mm -hmm. So it was lots of playing around with miscellaneous stuff until I actually actually got um, a tape drive. Mm -hmm. That was like, you know, a huge advancement for me. <laughs> yeah, because uh, there was a save, I think there was save command, right? Where you could save stuff, load and save. They were the most important commands. Yeah, it's been so long ago that I, I don't quite remember the details. Um, but yeah, I went straight to a tape device I might have gotten a hard drive as well after that. Mm -hmm. So basically all my friends would upgrade and I would buy their old stuff because okay. they'd sell it to me really cheap. 
And so, you know, when they upgraded to a hard drive, I bought their tape drive. When they maybe switched to, uh, I don't know, a Commodore 128 or something else or a new computer, then I bought their hard drive. Um, it, it, it wasn't uh, until college, probably my junior year in college, that I actually got a PC. Uh, okay. no, at college, we were, we were programming uh, in the computer center using... Um, originally it started out as a PDP 11. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was upgraded to, um, a deck machine using Ultrix. And so that was like my first Unix mm-hmm. experience. And I fell in love with Unix pretty, pretty yeah. quickly. Do you know Cameron Purdy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he was also a guest on, on, on the podcast and what he told me that he, I think for, 16 hours he wrote a program because he couldn't stop because there was no way to save it <laughs> <laughs> well see no, i had a problem I, I had a solution for that yeah my best friend uh my best friend at the time lloyd was uh he took the typing class and he could type like 60 words a minute wow so he would come over to my house we would type in he would type in the game i would read what to type and he would type it and mm-hmm. then we'd play the game hey, and cool. so you know, he'd leave, I'd have to turn off the machine, and it's gone. But I assume he couldn't program, right? He could only type. That's correct. So this is like separation of concerns, right? This was like the typing microservice, if you will. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, he was, he was my storage device, right? It's basically start over again. Yeah, um, cool. And then it became really bad because my power supply, which was external, right, started yeah. to go bad. And so as soon as we uh, bump the power, the power cable, the whole computer would turn off. It's like, yeah, darn it, got to start over again. We start typing it all over again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was in the like a situation. I got the ZX Spectrum, but it already came with uh, with a data set. So I could load and save stuff. My problem was um, the the manual was in French, but no one could read actually French in, in my family. <laughs> So so and and uh-huh. uh, I, I I could you know deduct from the from the context what the basic did, unless pick and poke. It drove me crazy. I never got the pick and poke, and 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 later I actually find out that it was no way I could actually learn what it does because you you have to know you know the map of the entire the layout of the memory to know what it's doing, and what I did you know a four loops I tried to find out and the computer crashed because I know I picked at something or poked at something which. Uh, Wait a second. Pick is set and poke is read, right? Uh, pick, I uh, think poke is, is yeah. Poke is right. Pick is read. Yeah. Uh, pick is read. Okay. So I did the poke, and uh, then I see you no know, color change, and there was strange sound, and then it stopped. It's like why it stopped? Because you know the computer crashed. So this was my pick and poke. So the question to you: um, you you got pick and pokes immediately, or someone explained to you? So what was your road to pick and pokes? <sighs> I don't remember what I got out of the box with the Commodore sixty four. You know, there was probably some instructions about how to do simple, you know, simple stuff. Yeah. Um, I got it right away with with peaks and pokes. I understood the concept of addresses and and where to peek and poke and that different, you know, different addresses uh, or different parts of memory, literally, right? Um, But you read something about that, right? So you read a book. You know, did different things. But you read a book or Uh, article or something. Again, it was at the time. Yeah, so every month I would go. There were probably two or three different Commodore sixty four magazines. Ah, oh, okay. 
Um, okay. So by then, yeah. So by then, I had my own job. I was a busboy at a restaurant, so I was making my own money. Okay. And not too far from the restaurant was a bookstore, and so okay. I'd go to the bookstore and I'd you know look at the magazine rack and yeah and, and type in all the latest example right um, by the magazine type in the examples etc. Hey, Tutorials. Cool. So, yeah. so you had a C sixty four until college. In college, you get a serious computer, PDP eight, and then you saw Unix and you really liked Unix. Yeah, so at the time, Unix wasn't really something that was available to your typical student. Um, there was Minix, which was a variant of, of, of Unix that we had at the college that you could install on your PC. Um, but yeah, so it started out with, with, with the PDP-11. Um, when I worked at the computer center, um, I was doing, you know, they would hire students uh throughout the year and over the summers to you know help with the business right of running a college writing custom forms using a 4gl stuff like that so i did that but i also got a chance to um um play around with uh um you know unix the seashell at the time rogue i got really good at rogue mm -hmm. if you remember rogue no uh, no so, mm -hmm. Really? Yeah, Rogue was basically an ASCII-based um, Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. So no, you would move around the screen, yeah. No, I, st I never... I, 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 wait a second. In, uh, in my uh, university, we had HP uh, Unix. And at home, I started with Unix, but uh, Linux. But it was very early Linux. And what I remember is also the Minix stuff. And... What I remember is like Linux was not complete, so you had to start with the Minix and then go with Linux or something like this. Can it be right that the Minix came with the drivers on PC and Linux was the user land back then at the beginning? Well, Minix was was pre-Linux. Exactly. But in yeah, the, fir so the first distribution in Germany I was able to get, I got both. On floppy disk, I got the Minix with drivers for CD-ROM and so forth. And on the CD, there was uh, Linux, as I remember. So I had both. For, and I exactly remember the Minix. I couldn't get why I need Minix and Linux, you know? Yeah. So, so when I, yeah, like, like I said, when I started, now, Minix was not free. It was copyrighted. You had to, you know, you had to buy it. Even for educational purposes, the university or the college I went to mm -hmm. had to buy Minix. Um, so it wasn't free. Um, whereas, you know, Linux is free and open source, right? Yeah. So I went from... Um, from that, uh, I, I always kind of had uh, mul multiple boot computers, right? So you'd always have your Windows, right? Whether it was Windows 3.1. Yeah. Um, so that, now we're getting the early early 90s probably um, after college. Or, or actually, no. Um, uh, the late 80s, I was doing DOS. Mm -hmm. And then Windows in the 90s. But I was also booting into... So I mentioned there was uh, Minix at college. Then after college... Um, I used a distribution called um, Coherence. Oh. Um, but from the Mark Williams company, which was basically a Unix-like distribution. Okay. So it, I, in the mail, I would get, you know, 10 floppy disks, and I would install Coherence, mm -hmm. and I'd do a lot of work um, with Unix via Coherence. Yeah. And then Linux came along and put Coherence, you know, the Mark Williams company out of business. Yeah. But until well, then, yeah, that's what I did. Uh, you probably know Lilo Linux Loader, and uh, yeah. and uh, you had to write the rewrite the master boot record from Windows with a t tool called DD. I remember, 
and uh, a couple of times I completely destroyed the MBR, and then nothing, <laughs> not, nothing booted. And then I started, you know, to back up this five hundred twelve bytes of MBR, you know, to 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 have dual boot back then. Yeah, that yeah yeah yeah. I mean, people learn to back up through pain. Uh, yeah. Now I've got like four copies of stuff, but yeah. Um, so I also so there's kind of like three parallel threads. For, you know, for me, there was what, what I was doing at college. Um, then there was what I was doing um, at work. So I went from Ultrix and the seashell um, to when I got out of college and got my first job, I was doing, like you, it sounds like HPUX, mm -hmm. HPUX. Mm -hmm. So, um, but at home, I was running Windows and... Um, and first coherence, and then later, I think I started with build point nine nine with the Linux kernel um, okay. back then. And what was your so, first job? Um, my first job um, out of college. Uh, during college, I did backups at the local hospital uh, in my college town. Mm -hmm. um, but my first job after college, um, I worked for Maytag. Okay. Um, in, in Galesburg, Illinois, because I went to Monmouth College in Illinois, which was, you know, enrollment at the time, 600 students. Mm -hmm. So a really small um, liberal arts college. So close by was Maytag. So I worked at Maytag. And at Maytag, I worked in the engineering department writing data acquisition systems. Okay. So um, the amount of engineering behind a refrigerator is crazy. Um it's, it's one of the few things in your house that runs 24 hours a day, right? Mm -hmm. Besides your clock. Now yeah. you could probably say there's more like your router and stuff like that. But, but you know, back then it was like basically your clock and your refrigerator. Yeah. So I wrote data acquisition systems, you know, um, where an engineer would, would basically make some change to a refrigerator and they needed to test it, right? So this, <laughs> it's, it's a very slow um, pipeline. Right, mm -hmm. um, the, the 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 turnaround time, and it goes into this temperature controlled room, and you measure um, over some period of time. Maybe you can't remember. Maybe it was like twenty four hours. And so I wrote um, in the HP sixty eight fifty two. God, it's scary. I remember that. Um, I think it was sixty eight fifty two scanner. Um, wrote basic code, and um, on the actual Unix system, it was C code. Mm -hmm. So basically, all the acquisition would be in BASIC on a data acquisition device that would measure um, basically these sensors that call them thermocouples inside a refrigerator. And then after uh, once a minute, or I can't remember how often I did it, it wasn't real time. Um, maybe once a minute, I would uh, read it, and then I would send it um, basically back to um, the Unix system where everything I did was written in C. Mm -hmm. So I did some uh, C programming for that, um, stored everything, didn't have a formal database. Um, I used uh, basically a flat file database system called uh, Kafka. C-Tree. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, one, one question. The um, Maytag, is it a U.S. refrigerator company? Oh, yeah, I should have said that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, U.S.-based refrigerator. They were headquartered in Iowa. Okay. Um, they were bought out by Whirlpool. So okay. Whirlpool is now, yeah. 
um, owns the brand and everything. And yeah, so so did it? Did and and they, they look like the typical US, you know, refrigerators, you know, the big, you know, uh, stainless or or red or whatever. So like, you know, the t typical design, right? Yeah. Um, so Maytags were a higher end brand. Okay. Um, but even within even within um, refrigerators, right? There's a higher end, you know. Mm -hmm. Even with a Maytag, there's the higher end and the and the lower end. Mm -hmm. And when you see the engineering that goes into a, into a refrigerator, there really are like significant improvements in the higher end aspect, okay. either higher quality components or whatever, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's the vibe I got back. Is when when you buy a higher end refrigerator, there is additional engineering involved. It's not just that they're trying to create marketing things for you. So. Yeah, so I, I I assume all all your refrigerators uh, are now higher end, right? Since then, <laughs> <laughs> not always they weren't. Yeah, not not always. I don't think I even got an employee discount. Actually, at the time, I didn't need one uh, because in the U.S., actually in, in Illinois, it's different in California. But in Illinois, when you rent a place, mm -hmm. the refrigerator tends to come with. So okay. I never really had to buy anything until I moved out to California. Okay. Okay. So and uh, and in this job you already bumped into Java or or was it the next job or what next was next job next job was it okay what was your next job yeah I worked for Household International um, and they they basically uh, they had a, a division called Household Finance mm -hmm. and it's a lot what you could do today with MasterCard and Visa, right? You can get name brand um, credit cards, right? Mm -hmm. So you can go to, you know, like the American Airlines, right? Um, and, or Marriott, right? They, they, they go through Visa and MasterCard, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. For their credit cards. Household had something very similar. Um, so I, I worked in... Um, a part of, of household that basically did, did loans. Mm -hmm. And so believe it or not, this, this organization, when I joined, um, was moving to Unix on the desktop. Okay. Um, th this was in the early nineties, uh, early mid nineties, I should say, maybe it was the mid nineties. There was a big effort by the Unix vendors to push Unix into the desktop. Mm -hmm. And, This is around the same time as like next computer as well, right? Okay. Um, so that gives you some some of the time frames here. So I was basically um, responsible for um, customizing the Unix desktop, um, and I, I wrote some code too um, for that business, right? So that was um, HP UX desktops. Then they switched. They, uh, there was, you know, that market kind of fell out. So they switched over to um, PCs, but we ran Solaris, okay. uh, Sun OS on the PCs. Um, and eventually they went to Windows, but that's how I picked up the Sun side of things. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I picked up, I, again, I was, I was responsible for kind of customizing the OS, um, Sun OS on top of the PC. Um, and then... You know, through that time, right, you know, the the day I read the article um, about Java, and you might remember this, I couldn't believe it. It's like, wait a second, I touch, you know, with, with the cursor, mm -hmm. you you touch Duke, 
Yeah. And you could move him, and, and he would do a cartwheel. Yes. This is, and there was a so, duke with, uh, you know, with, uh, how to call it, so air pressure hammer? What, like your animation? Yes. And, and yeah, there was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there was another one. It was, there was the most it, it impressive one. It was the one. under construction duke, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there was one even more impressive. It was like particles. So you can, you know, touch a particle with the mouse, and all other particles also moved around. They were like, you know, there was yeah. spring between them. I forgot actually the demo, but um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the day I saw that, I went to their website and started writing Java code. You know, pulled down some some examples, started writing simple stuff. Um, so this was probably 96, 90, no, 95, late yeah. 95, maybe 96. Yeah. So on the side, um, four of us at household created a side company called NetObjective. And mm -hmm. so we didn't know what we wanted to do exactly, but we were going to write, you know, custom Java stuff, right? Or, or kind of be, be a consulting company. And um, the first big Java app I wrote was um, basically Telnet. So I wrote, um, so I actually got, believe it or not, I, I, I got into client-side Java, not server-side Java. Mm-hmm. So I was a big swing person. In fact, I'm I'm kind of co-author of a swing patent, um, swing-related patent. Cool. Um, did uh, uh, AWT. Uh, so so basically, what I did was I, I wrote a Telnet client, wrote the uh, a VT100 emulator um, to go on top of that, um, and that was pretty big, and in, in terms of effort, right? Yeah. It, it, Especially in the day when you're trying to, you know, how do you scroll um, in a performant way? This is, yeah. you know, JDK 1.1, stuff yeah. like that. It's yeah. like, oh, my God. So uh, so that's kind of how I got really into Java. Um, By the way, then you have to remember, back then we got the first namespace issue. Because as Sun started, there was com sun swing. And then they renamed that to javax.swing. Yes. So we had to, you know... Yes. And back then, the first, you know, uh, hysteria. <laughs> so everything is broken, you know, stupid sun. We changed the namespaces. And uh, in one project, we, we considered to move from AWT to Swing. I was also a front-end person back then. And, um, and uh, I remember, you know, the input, the text field in Swing was not even properly rendered. So there was just, you know, the lower part. But the you know the upper shadow was uh, was lacking, so there was nothing. So it, it it didn't look right. But we knew we had to move to move towards this because it was like oh, how was this called lightweight component model, and and was not native like AWT. Yeah, um, I, I I just remember um, really getting into Java. Um, so then I I moved uh, to California. Basically, I was chasing my wife around until she'd marry me. So uh, now we're married and here in California. So she came out to California. Um, I followed. I got a job with Sun Microsystems. How how and many miles on average have you chased uh, a wife uh, or a woman until well, becomes a wife? Yeah. Uh, I, okay. So when I was working um, at Maytag, yeah, I lived in 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 Monmouth, Illinois. She lived in Kansas City, and every other weekend I'd, I'd make that drive. How so far, it was far about is it? A six hour drive. Okay. Six hours. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I did it for, you know, you know, how do I let's see? She moved to Chicago, then I eventually moved to Chicago. <laughs> she, I would say 
thousands of miles okay. of driving, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of driving, and uh, I would say, you know, thousands of miles of air travel. Okay. So it was expensive. Hey, but it paid off. And, and not very good for the environment. So right now, you know, with Prius and uh, with electric cars would be better, right? Uh, probably not. <laughs> because yeah, I right. might have exceeded the distance. Yeah. I might have exceeded the distance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would have been, I would have run out uh, before I got there, um, especially <laughs> yeah. batteries at the time, right? Yeah. So. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah. You know, when you're trying to date somebody saying, hey, can you come pick me up? You know. Yeah. Two, two, every other week doesn't work out very well. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, oh, so, yeah. So I came to Sun. Um I was actually in hardware sales, so I sold E10Ks. Um, oh, the, I sold. You, you know yeah, the E10Ks, the, the storage. The E10Ks is one of my favorite machines, just because of the look and feel. They looked incredible. So I was uh, um, so from time to time I delivered trainings at um, Sun Microsystems in Munich, and uh, that mm -hmm. I always wanted you know to see the E10Ks because it was like you know um, the real look from design from the outside was really nice, and. I would say five years ago, I wanted to buy one uh, just to have a closet for my, um, yeah, just, just, you know, to move everything out and use it as a closet for my clothes. And um, it was mm -hmm. like 1,000 euros or something. It was completely cheap. But, uh, you know, uh, they, they was in Australia and the transport to Germany would be very expensive. But the Eaton case were like cray. They were incredibly powerful back then. And this was actually the first yep. first use case for application servers because, the hardware was so expensive, so yeah, so they they bought application server and loaded as many you know years as possible on the machine, you know, to share the costs. Yep. Yeah, cool. Yep. So, so you I, I remember those days. So you sold the Eaton case. This is interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah when was I sold it? The workstations. Two thousand. What was that? When was it? Two thousand. Um, no, the E ten case I began selling in ninety seven, ninety eight. Okay. Um, because when I, I remember getting a presentation on the E10K back when I was in household, that was right when I was, I, I, I moved um, to California and, and, and the work for Sun Micro. So, um, when I say sell, I didn't, I, I've never lived in Silicon Valley. Um, I, I live in, um, basically Orange County, California. Okay. So, um, I wasn't doing engineering. I was doing sales stuff. Um, okay. and this was right around the time where, when you had, the E10Ks, the 6500s, the 4500s, um, uh, E450s, God, workstations, Spark. When I first started, the Ultra Spark 2s, I think, might have come out. Mm -hmm. Ultra Spark 1s and 2s. Okay. Um, th those might have been a little bit, those might have been out for a little while. Uh, so, anyway, I, uh, I brought my Java skills with me. So, you know, I would write some Java demos mm -hmm. for. Um, customers, you know, you, you, you do a lot of field marketing, meaning you, you go to customers a lot and you set up shop and customers during their breaks would, would come by and take a look at the latest hardware, the latest software that Sun had to offer. So I was, I was writing all sorts of, uh, Java demos. I was talking to customers about, you know, how to write Java. It's, you know, it's a lot like C, right? Start out by writing C. Um, and then we could move to, you know, more object oriented stuff. Uh, I got hugely into Genie. Um, yeah. I wrote a ton of Genie code. Um, then I did uh, a little bit of Juxta. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
eventually, yeah. Peer-to-peer technology, Juxta. Uh, so Juxta, for, yeah, yeah. Juxta, yeah, for those who don't know, yeah, Juxta's peer-to-peer. Genie was different. Genie had the philosophy of don't bring your code to the data. Sorry, don't bring your data to the code. Bring your code to the data. Yeah. So it's about locality, right? So, um and leasing. Gina and, was great. It, yeah, it, and the leasing was actually this is the most stolen pattern in my projects by by me is like leasing. You know, if yep. the that every resource has to re-register in the network, and uh, if the resource dies, it it misses the re-registration, which just disappear from the network. Oh, a quick story on that. Um, so I Sun had these um, kits they would send around to the field that showed Genie, and it was always about devices. If you remember, Genie was geared for devices, right? Yeah your computer can automatically discover your printer and you don't have to install a device driver, right? All, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I never really kind of got into that. So I wrote um, this this Genie app that was basically an IDE. Mm-hmm. So it starts out as a swing text area. And then you start, um, you, you begin starting these additional services and it would extend the text area into an IDE. So it did... If you start one, it would do syntax highlighting. You start another, it was a compiler. You started another, um, I can't remember what it was. Um, but, it, it, again, it was just a demo, right? So yeah. it's not a real-world thing. But the funniest thing about that demo was I was at the Java user group meeting here in uh, Orange County demoing this, and I ran out of, basically ran out of memory. So it started paging, right? Mm-hmm. And because it was paging, the leases weren't being renewed in time because yeah. I had the lease time set really low because it's a demo, right? You want things to pop up right away. Yeah. Um, and so this IDE, you would see menu options come and go. You would see the <laughs> syntax highlighting come and go. Yeah. Um, and it proved the point of Genie, right? Which was not intended, but it was the, it was the coolest thing. Um, so yeah. Just to show how, how dynamic it could be. So on-stage hacking always pays off, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It was an unintended but very positive consequence. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. What, what's interesting is this Jaxta had an exactly opposite pattern. They had the so-called, I think, walkers, where there was a, a network walker who um, just um, which uh, walked you know through all the nodes and gathered information. So it was a complete opposite of Genie, the discovery mechanism. Yeah. Uh... I'm trying to remember what they use for discovery. It's been so long. I remember Walker because it's like from Star Wars, the Walker. Okay. So I know for sure there was a walking traversal algorithm. And uh, Genie had, you know, the, how it's called, uh, service discovery manager, which uh, something like this, or a lookup manager where you, you, you had to re-register all your services over and over again. And there was like convenience class, which re-registered everything um, automatically. So interesting. So you, yeah, you, you use a lot of multicast. So you are you are uh, the first Juxta who knows who knows Jaxta. So I, I probably you also remember Java Spaces then, right? Oh, do, oh yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> I demoed Java. I, I demoed all the stuff to customers back in the day. So so uh, with with Juxta, it used a well known address, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um. To do yeah to to do discovery. Um. You had to like seat at the beginning, and then it, yeah it, yeah, and then it it yeah. Actually, with Jackstar, I, I created a um, a proof of concept for Volkswagen in Germany. Uh, you know, like car to car communication and uh, traffic con- congestion. You know, uh, avoidance. This was okay. Jackstar based. Um, yeah, back then. Yeah. So, so Genie died because it didn't have because people incorrectly associated it too tightly with devices. 
Yeah, it was the marketing was um, stupid. Mar well, no, the, the marketing was okay. In Germany, um, it was terrible. It was a good way. Okay. In Germany, they tried to, to demonstrate. What in Germany, what they tried to do is, you know, it's on. They, there was a conference and they saw Genie like a printer driver distribution system. It was like, okay, no one is interested in it. I mean, forget about printers. Uh, this was the best possible SOA technology back then, actually. If, the, it, you know, if Genie will came out, I think this SOAP and SOA will never come up, I would say. Well, you, it, it, Maybe because Genie is still was very Java centric. Yeah, yeah. But so, it was uh, RMI um, independent, so you could have you know binding. Well, I don't know XML RPC binding, whatever you could actually abstract the communication. Yeah, you could probably do that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then Juxta never took off. I think just because peer to peer computing never really hit mainstream. Yeah, um, it was <laughs> it was probably too too closely associated with ripping off software. Yeah, and torrents and stuff. But it was LimeWire and that kind of stuff. But I think it was Bill Joy who came up with uh, with Jexta, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, what it did it? Jim Waldo and yeah. folks came up with Genie. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah, Bill Joy was Juxta. It never really took off. Um, so this is incredible then, what you did with Jexta, Genie, no, JavaScript stuff. Yeah. Oh. Well, I loved being in sales. Um, a because I love to talk talk to customers. Um, you know, the thing about technical sales is you just don't come go to a customer and say, you know, buy my stuff. Um, I really had to get involved with what the customers were doing and understand the problems they're trying to solve and then apply, you know, the right products that, that we had at Sun to solving the problem. Now, that's true for all the hardware stuff. All the Java stuff tended to be gravy on top of that um, because at that point in time, Java was still... You know, there weren't, there weren't app servers and stuff like that yet, right? Um, yeah. Java EE was just kind of starting out around that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, it wasn't un until the early 2000s that I started picking up on app servers and, and that stuff. Okay. And, uh, okay, because you stick with, early you know, years. with the hardware, so there was the natural progression from Jexta Genie and to Java EE, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I picked up on Java EE. The funny thing is, um, it's it's Sun. Everybody used um, auto NFS mounts, mm -hmm. right? So if you just CD to the directory, it would auto mount yeah. the directory. So I'd see an email with a link to something, and then all you do is you follow the path backwards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and so I was tracking. I'd be in people's home directories. I probably shouldn't be saying this. This is recorded. Um, in, uh, in, in people's, um, uh, in, in areas in engineering hard drives with like the latest builds of Java mail and, and all these various things going on, cool. um, servlets before they were even publicly kind of announced. I think they were all kind of POCs. So I, I picked up a lot of what was going on, um, like really, really early, um, because it was fun on, on the Java side. Do you also remember Gyro? J-I-R-O. This was like Java-based uh, hard disk and hardware management system from Sun. Or Giro or Gyro. Giro. The name sounds familiar, but it's not sticking with anything in particular. Okay, there was an answer Java 1 2000. So I attended this session. I was really excited. Was say, I don't even have enough hardware to run, to, <laughs> to run Giro on it. But, um, yeah, interesting. Okay. okay. And, so, and you started... With sublets, so you 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 know you knew what's going on, and um, 
So what happened then? So you started, you know, to pick up J2E and or yeah, J2E back then, and uh, demoed it to your clients, customers. Yeah, uh, it was probably you know the two thousand three four time frame. I probably started picking up more in, into the middleware aspect. Again, I'm still selling hardware at this point in time, but um, actually, it might have been around two thousand five that I started doing um, uh, some consulting work. So they would basically take some of us out of the field and move us into consulting roles. So um, I was doing some consulting roles around um, software architecture and Java uh, around that time. Um, the And picking up app servers like the, uh, you know, the iPlanet app server, mm -hmm. um, The the problem was this is a time when when Sun was kind of shrinking, mm -hmm. and when when I when I was in sales, I worked in the kind of the government area. Um, I worked with government integrators like the Boeing's and the Lockheed's and the Hughes and the TRWs at the time, um, Raytheon, and people. A lot of people were getting laid off, right? Because Sun wasn't necessarily doing that well. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I kind of saw, you know, my days were numbered. I was like one of the last people that did not have a clearance. I never got a uh, security clearance. So I never got on cleared programs and stuff. Just didn't want to. So I kind of saw the days were numbered. And so that's when kind of a nice opportunity came by and I moved into product management. So I became the, the Glassfish product manager um, and did a lot of work with Java E. So that's when I really went, you know, full bore into server-side Java. It was 2007. And this is probably when we met. I think the first time, the Java one. And so yeah, on. yeah, probably. Yeah, Java one is. Yeah, it was one of the Java ones that we met. Um, and yeah, we talked a lot about Glassfish. Uh, we were both NetBeans users. Um, yeah, I only switched away from NetBeans probably. I don't know. Two, three years ago. Okay. Um, Doing up. No, I never did pick up IntelliJ. I did some Eclipse, and now I use Visual Studio Code. Yeah, I also use Visual Studio Code, but for larger projects, still NetBeans or IntelliJ, but never Eclipse, actually. Um, yeah, and uh, what I remember, you were... Yeah, I, I never... I, I, sorry, I actually get IntelliJ for free, but I don't use it. Yeah, I, what I don't like in IntelliJ is you know, all the crazy shortcuts. And I, oh, I, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I like you know to, 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 to use the out-of-the-box experience from IDE, and the reason being I'm a consultant, so if I do too much customizations. I cannot just use other machines, so I try to stick with the defaults. And it's really hard with IntelliJ because uh, the key combination is just crazy. So NetBeans basically has two, control space and alt-enter. And uh, uh, like IntelliJ has uh, probably 50 or something. So it's a completely different, you know, expert expert tool, I would say. And uh, Eclipse is uh, even even wild, more wild, because Eclipse is like, you know, it really depends which plugins you loaded. So then also the behavior. Right. Depends. Yeah. But um, what's, what I remember is you were all for the Glassfish 3 and the modularization. And I said, you know, what are you talking yep. about? I know who cares about that? Just the Glassfish V2 was, and what, what I really was crazy about is because the Glassfish V3 was modular, but it booted slower. And the Glassfish V2 was monolithic, but it was actually booted faster. So I guess, oh, go ahead with the V2. I mean, who needs the modules? That should not have been the case. At the beginning, I, it was. I, I don't remember that. At the beginning, it was because uh, it, it booted without the admin console and everything, you know. 
and it just booted whatever uh, Glassfish saw, and uh, the Glassfish V2 booted everything, and um, and and then they fixed that. That they, they did right. something. Yeah, yeah. Then then it was faster. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Glassfish three should have been faster. Mm-hmm. What what basically happened there? The reason why we started the modularize, and so did every other app server, uh, is because of web profile. Yeah. Right. Um, so as soon as you had web profile, um, you and you wanted to provide both as a vendor because um, both were were actually being you know interested in both and customers wanted to do both. So um, that kind of forced a modularization issue. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went the route. We started out with HK two. Um, yep. With Glassfish, and then Glassfish, and that was going to be its own standalone. Uh, do you remember um, uh, Koshuke? Yeah, um, uh, Kava Kavagichi Kavaguchi. He was the Jenkins yeah. inventor. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, Hudson inventor. Yeah, Hudson, sorry, <laughs> Hudson, time. Hudson. Of course, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so um, he became, uh, he actually wrote, he and I think Jerome um, Doshe yeah. wrote HK2. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Jerome, I think, is still Google now. Um, but they both wrote HK2. And then, basically, we had some pretty important customers that said, we need OSGI. So then HK2 became a layer on top of OSGI. But at the time, you know, if you look at, product timelines, like when you want to get product out the door and, um, you know, OSGI was something very new. And instead of training, like, all these developers on on OSGI bundles, HK2 became a layer on top of OSGI. Yeah. So they, all these, you know, the engineers responsible for the various parts of App Server learned HK2. Mm-hmm. And then HK2 did the mapping down to the OSGI bundles. The cool story is I had a podcast with Steve Millich uh, about Payara Micro versus Payara Full, and he told me that um, the main difference between Payara Full, which is based on Glassfish, of course, and Payara Micro, which is the newer version of, of, of Glassfish, is that Payara Micro comes just with HK2 without OSGI. They removed the OSGI completely, <laughs> which is fun. It's like, hey, uh, I consider this a progress because back then, you know, OSGI was a, a, a huge buzzword. And I was constantly confronted with OSGI, how great it is. But for, in my world, in my project, there was no no use cases for it. If you are applications of a vendor, of course. But in enterprise project, I mean, we have the use cases. If we deliver, we deliver. Whether we deliver, you know, one bundle or 50, no one cares, right? Yeah, we had uh, Sahu. I forgot his last name. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a really smart engineer who did. Um, he's, he's actually on the OSGI enterprise. Well, he was. I'm guessing he still is on the OSGI um, Enterprise Working Group. So he did a lot of the OSGI Enterprise work in um, in Glassfish, but OSGI Enterprise never took off. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that didn't – that was kind of, from a product perspective, a wasted investment. You know, we, we made a go at it, but it just never really materialized in the market. Yeah. So, um, yeah, What's... and I, I was mm-hmm. – What's right. what's back then? What's also interesting is uh, back then, if I, I I use Glassfish everywhere because of the reference implementation, and you know the the idea that you can buy support for the reference impl- implementation appeared to me genius. It's like this is actually great. Mm-hmm. You can pick something which is well documented with all the JSRs. You go into a project, and if customer would like to buy the support, they can just buy it. So I mean, there is and I was actually to sell a lot of <laughs> of support contracts and. And and then 
I asked the the the, the Sun guys, and and they couldn't sell any, any support, and and it turned out that like. I don't know why, but it actually never happened. And then, you know, the whole glassfish idea went south because the, the business case was not there, right? Well, I wouldn't say it wasn't the business case. I would say um, if if you're a sales rep and you can sell a product for 25000 or sell it for 5000 you're going to want to sell the 25000 And yeah. that's where glassfish okay. kind of got got hurt. You know, there was, there's some truth in what you said. Um, so, you know, if you look at MySQL in the Oracle database, they both found a home at Oracle. Mm-hmm. Um, Glassfish just couldn't find a home. Um, it couldn't find the right market, um, you know, relative to WebLogic. Yeah. So I was actually the one that posted the blog post saying mm-hmm. no more enterprise Glassfish. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that. Right? I think it was November eighth, twenty fourteen. Mm-hmm. If I remember the date properly, yeah. So I had to write that. Um, it was painful, right? Because you know it's, it's a product that I basically managed for for six or seven years. But it was honest. So, yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah. It was. That's. I'll tell you. Coming into Oracle, um, one thing Oracle is really good at is th- there was a lot of product overlap between Sun and Oracle. And so they basically said, look, this is what we're going to do, right? We've done the analysis. We're going to keep this product and not keep this product. In, in some cases, it was the Sun. In some cases, uh, it was the Oracle product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they did an honest um, evaluation of, of these products, you know, based on technology and market and size and stuff like this. Um, and they're very straightforward with customers. And they were, you know, had to be very straightforward with customers about Glassfish. So that is, you know, one of the things that I, I do remember that I, you know, really liked about Oracle is they were very straightforward with, listen, this is the decision. We know it's going to hurt some people. Uh, you know, this is our recommended direction. Um, but we understand if you decide not to do that, right? But it just doesn't make business sense for us to duplicate, you know, 200 products or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so. this was also my, I mean, Outside observation that Oracle was not as political; they were very pragmatic, almost like you know, in military decision. Okay, we do do this, this clear, and this was <laughs> w- w- what I observed from from the outside. Like uh, you know, I, I was never an employee in a larger company, so it's always funny to observe you know how larger companies operate. I'm just a freelancer, so uh, no politics in my world. Um, but you I've left- never heard it referred to as military, but that is actually it is very top down. Okay. Uh, in that sense, right? Well, when I was there, right, it was very top down in that sense. You know, it's like we, we're making the decision at the top because of you know the higher. Keep in mind, Oracle's got you know a hundred thousand products. I don't know what the real number is, right? Mm-hmm. And so the higher up you go, the broader the visibility you have. And so sometimes these decisions, I think, can only be made at that level because of the breadth of view they have across the product portfolio. Um, it gets harder and harder the further down in the management chain that you go because your view is narrower and narrower in, yeah. in, into the portfolio. Yeah. And um, so you, in one point, you left Oracle, right? Was it when was it? Yeah. Uh, so basically, that was when uh, the work kind of stopped on Java EE, you uh-huh. know. You 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 you've seen the you know Josh 
Juno's analysis, right, of all the commits with yeah. Java. If you remember that blog entry, that yeah. was in the early days of the Guardians. Yeah. Um, but, you know, basically my job was going to be eliminated. Um, mm -hmm. I had an option to go somewhere else in the company, and I decided instead to come to Red Hat. Okay, cool. So, yeah. Um, but, um, in one point of time, I remember you were the lead of the Avatar project, right? Of JavaScript framework. Uh, Avatar, Project Avatar. Yeah. This was uh, after Glassfish, right? This was after Glassfish, yeah. And so basically it was Node.js on the, on the VM. Exactly. With right, uh, VM. Yeah. Actually an interesting idea. It uh, comes again with GraalVM. It comes over and over again. But uh, back then it was like Avatar and another project. I forgot what two, two projects were, were similar. Yeah, there was, um, was it Torquebox? One of the ones, was that Ruby? One of the ones from Red Hat had a similar one. Torquebox um, is, is from Red Hat, but there was Sun Hat or yeah. Oracle Hat 2, Avatar and another one. They, they demoed uh, in Java 1. There was like a front-end framework and Avatar was the back-end, you know? Yeah, so, so we did, um, Avatar went through various things trying to find, um, trying to find the right formula for, you know, to be interested by developers, to be used by developers. Yeah. And so we were trying to basically, hey, okay, here's Node.js, but imagine having the entire enterprise Java library ecosystem at your disposal, mm -hmm. right? Um, it just never really panned out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we kind of stopped work on that as well. Um, you know, not all innovations make it. You, you know, you take shots at it, and that was one of the ones that was a really good shot, and it just didn't find a market. Um, so, yeah, so I, I was working on that as well. Um, started to do a little bit of, of work with, with WebLogic um, PM near the end, but that's kind of when uh, Oracle kind of started shifting things a little bit, and then um, I came to Red Hat. Yeah, and my impression is the decision was right, so you are happy at Red Hat, Red Hat right? Well, um, I'll, I'll tell you what. I learned a ton at Oracle. Right. I mean, obviously, I learned a lot at Sun because I was there for 13 years, I think. And if you tack on Oracle, um, that was like 18 years um, with the same company, if you, if you count acquisitions being part of the same company. Mm -hmm. So um, in, in some sense, it was just, you know, a, a change is, is good. Um, but I really wanted to stay working with middleware because I like working with middleware. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why, you know, I... I decided to move over to Red Hat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at Red Hat, that's when we started kicking off. You know, you, you know about Swarm, and I know your thoughts about Swarm. <laughs> we don't necessarily have to talk about it here. But I was also PM for, uh, you know, we have a Node.js distribution. We have a Spring Boot distribution. Uh, we have Vertex. Mm -hmm. And so my job was to basically get all those productized and delivered to market, which we've done. Um, so, you, uh, you know. We, we've got those on the market now um, as as supportable runtimes at at Red Hat. Yeah, uh, I thought you are. In, in, so so you were actually the PM for all the middleware at Red Hat or something like this. Not all. Yeah, Not all. just um just the microservice like runtimes, right? So Node, Spring, Swarm, okay, uh, which is now Thorntail and um and Vertex. It's uh, right. Thorntail still. Is it on hold or still, you know, going forward? It's we're it's going to continue to move forward for the life cycle of the product, okay. right? Because we have commitments to customers. 
So um, it, you know, the life cycle ends, I think, in November of 2020. Okay. So we're going to, you know, add, you know, another micro profile release or two on there, right? Um, you know, continue that. But really the direction there is going to be Quarkus. So we had Thorntail 4 in the works. Um, Thorntail 2 layers on top of JBoss modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorntail 4, we were looking at making them um, much more kind of like Quarkus, where it's just a flat um, flat class path. You just, you know, add the dependencies. There's, there's no dynamic loading or anything. Uh, would have been a lot faster. Would have been um, better consu- memory consumption than, than um, Thorntail. But then we decided to kind of bring in, you know, engineering as a whole brought in a whole bunch of skill sets from across engineering. And the output of that, as you know, is, is, is Quarkus. Yeah. Um, so the last interaction about, uh, uh, so you challenge or you ask me over and over again about my opinion about Wi-Fi Swarm, about the use cases. The last time at Code 1 last year, you attended my talk, I think, right? So we met mm-hmm. the last time at Code 1. And uh, in March, I somehow found Quarkus. And I say, okay, another runtime, you know, microprofile runtime with uh, with um, probably, you know, some use cases or, or solution to problems I don't have. And I took a look at this, and I have to say, the first time... Solution I... to problems I don't have. Yeah, really. Sorry, because... I just think that's funny. <laughs> yeah, because, uh, yeah, but uh, this is what usually happens. You know, I, I constantly in my projects, some... People, developers come to me with, you know, some strange frameworks and ask me about my opinion. So, okay, which problem does the framework solve? And I get no answer. So, okay, then we can do, you know, a little bit fun or research or we can hack a weekend on it, but we cannot just, you know, put it to production if no one knows why it's good. But with Quarkus, mm-hmm. after playing with it, uh, the first thing which impressed me or the first thing what I found interesting it is not an even archetype, it's a small thing. So, okay, this is not an archetype. It starts quickly. Interesting. And then um, this Quarkus development mode, it's okay, this uh, put it aside, too much magic. But that, then I took a look, you know, what happens with the Fed jar or Uber jar, which actually isn't a Fed jar or Uber jar, which was also, so okay, this is like, you know, application servers development model 2.0. So there's a true innovation here. And what I was also impressed, you know, with the, good documentation right out of the box so after the project was generated mm-hmm. i got the links you know to the tutorials and all the extensions there's a overall good developer experience and out of the box experience and it is a subset of java e i think which i already know i don't have you know to learn strange programming paradigms just to be funky so um mm-hmm. and um so i have to say the first time i, I to, you probably saw i recorded a few screencasts and blog about that because i saw oh, and it is value um, the first time about uh-huh. something new. And this is a true progress. This is a true innovation because for me, innovation doesn't mean relearn everything and, 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 and show how smart you are. For me, it's like, you know, boring programming model. And behind the scenes, the computer does something for you with added value. So, so two quick things. Um, the first is dev mode really isn't magic. It's not like JRebel. I mean, basically, it just drops the class loader and reloads everything from scratch. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, it just happens so fast. So it's it's not like a lot of magic. It's just a little bit of magic. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but if you start, so, you know, if I evaluate whatever, a framework, regardless what it is. So I try, you know, to start with the least possible amount of magic. Just, you know, see what it does. Just hello world without any additional, you know, tuning. 
And this was my way, just you know, just to remove yeah, yeah, the. Yeah. And now I'm using the the Quarkus Death Mode all the time because I mean, it's convenient. But at the beginning, I don't like to start with because then I immediately think, you know, now I'm depending, uh, um, depending on on the you know on the plugins, or which is somehow problematic in enterprise projects. Yeah, I, I'll tell you. Um, when I develop with Quarkus, yeah, I live in Dev Mode um, because basically. Um, I, I never have to restart the VM unless I add a, a new dependency, right? But otherwise, it's like um, I can go from nothing to something pretty substantial with never restarting the VM. It's just really fast and natural. The the other thing I, I wanted to point out, and it's it's it was a huge compliment. It was by a Red Hatter, um, but not somebody involved with Quarkus. You know, maybe some field person. You know, was in, I think somewhere in Europe. Um, and they saw it and they tried it. And the biggest compliment was this feels new and familiar at the same time. Yeah. This is right. And to me, that was such a, I mean, not a compliment to me, um, but to the, to the Quarkus engineering team, right? I mean, they, uh, they, they did some work that was pretty amazing. Um, there is lots of magic going on um, during build time. Um, which actually happens during the reload too, to be honest. Um, but um, the fact that they do so much scanning, you know, all that stuff that normally happens at runtime, they do at build time. And the fact that build time still happens in, you know, half a second is is pretty amazing. Yeah. To me. Uh, what interests me, who got the idea about Quarkus? So uh, when it started and how it started? Because you had already Whitefly, you had, you know, Thorntail, and now. There was, you know, who who came out with that with Quarkus? Uh, technically, that would be a better answer for you know some of the engineering folks, but it was a combination probably of, um, you know, early on, Jason Green, Emmanuel Bernard, and Bob McWhorter mm-hmm. um, are kind of the architects behind it. Um, and they could probably tell you how it grew from there. The funny thing about Quarkus is. Okay, we want to keep these business guys. <laughs> no, that's me. Yeah. Um, away, away from um, this stuff until we're ready to show it, right? Because yeah. they were, they they had this great idea, and I think they wanted to get it right before they introduced it to us uh, on the business side. So, um, you know, we saw it. We were like, "Oh, this is big, right? This is pretty disruptive," um, and. You know, it it is, right? Um, so the fact that, you know, I guess my main, my main point is I wasn't involved from day one. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the engineering guys could really answer that question about okay. how in detail, you know, it came together at the time. Okay. And and, and, and when it started about, you know, how, how long it was already in development? Somebody looked at the repo. They were kind of comparing various, you know, there's 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 new sets of runtimes okay. um, that are doing this now, right? Like Helidon and, and Micronaut and, mm-hmm. um, and, and Quarkus. And I think our first commit was... Um, late spring, maybe, mm-hmm. of last calendar year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's first commit. And so who knows? You know, I'm not sure how long stuff happened before that. Okay. Right. Um, what's what's really amazes me, so um, this actually, um, I thought the idea came from business, not from engineering, because 
Um, as you remember, we always had to you know the discussion with the glassfish engineers, and I was from I, I come from projects, and you come you know from the runtime perspective, and the runtime mm -hmm. engineers they are all about modularization, optimization, small modules, g generic interfaces, uh, and flexibility. And, and and for me, what is important the developer experience. So what I would like to have, you know, one jar, launch the jar, and it should work. So I don't care about all the plugins and whatever. I'd, I'm absolutely not interested in the inner workings of it. And um, what happens here, I mean, if you look at Quarkus, it is consistent. So yeah, <laughs> almost. You saw my Quarky attempt, you know, to make it a little bit... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so what I did is I just, you know, started Quarkus and loaded all the plugins I need all the time and created a Maven archetype with it, so I save a little bit of time. But with that, you know, it comes out of the box. It feels to me like an application server, which starts fast and is small, with the option to uh, to create a native image, if you like. And um, and this is something very usable. So and if, if, if an engineer would start such a thing, what usually will happen, you know, you'll get, you know, 500 uh, jars where you can tweak and and then create your own best of breed you know set of of jars and you will be completely um, um, in control of what you are doing but you will spend you know one week for optimization with just minor added value for the business so you and I are coming at this from different angles um, I saw quirky and I'll be honest um, I wasn't a fan um, because I actually ran a test last night because I knew that we were going to talk today. I ran just a very quick test. I said, "Okay, here's a here's a here's a hello world." Um, actually, no, I, I, I created uh, a quirky. You know, I ran your your, your archetype, right? We got the ping resource and everything. I said, "Okay, I'm going to comment out everything except the JaxRS endpoint," and and then I, I you know I started it, measured some stuff, and then I uncommented. Um, so basically, all your Archetype stuff was there, right? I mean, all your dependencies were there. And the the problem is that it started... Now, this is all relative, right? And it's with no tuning. This is just out-of-the-box measuring. Yeah. Um, it took twice as long to start in both native and um, JVM mode. And it took twice as much RAM in yeah. both native and JVM mode. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's, there's a consequence, right? And, and my point is that really what... If you look at what Quarkus is geared toward, it's really geared toward high-density containerized environments, right? And Quarky, the way I look at Quarky is it's not really solving that problem as a first-class problem. It's solving a different problem yes. as a first-class problem. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, that's that's why, you know, I mentioned we're coming at it from, from different angles. But we always, always, you remember the discussion, I know, three years ago at Java 1 where you asked me, you know, what's your impression, uh, what's your opinion on, you know, heap sizes and application servers? And I say, I don't care because in Europe, RAM is cheap. I mean, if you, you know, buy, you know, you can buy two gigs for two cents or who cares about, you know, the RAM. And uh, you're absolutely right. But what I did, I think it was last week, I was invited to JSpring, a larger conference in the Netherlands. And I actually demoed Quarky, and I said this is the worst possible experience you could get with Quarkus because I loaded everything I need or okay. could possibly need, and it took off, and I got already two project requests because they saw, you know, mm -hmm. this is honest, and I saw them, you know, all the dependency. I, I had the entire micro profile, the Hibernate ORM, because at one point I could need that, mm -hmm. and um, it was still quick. And what I had yeah. on my machine, I had, you know, 
I had OpenShift running, Docker running, Quarkus, IDE, and uh, Open Liberty because I switched back and forth between Java 8 and um, and MicroProfile and Quarkus. And with Quarkus, I did some JWT uh, demo. with. So I think this is just honest because in most of my projects, I can't remember a single project just with JaxRS. Really. This is my honest... I Oh. That's Never. a fair. I mean, th th that's a fair description. Like, I also went through and visually. I didn't actually do the testing. So, so when I was saying twice as fast and twice as less RAM, that's like complete opposite ends of the spectrum. I, I think most projects will be somewhere in between. Yes. Um, I think where, where you're at and where I'm at, and I fully recognize that and realize that. Right. So, you know, fair point. Um, where. You know, so we just had our, our summit conference earlier, well, about a month ago, right, in May. And I've, I've talked to customers who are actually looking potentially to move away from Java mm -hmm. because of RAM utilization. Yeah. Right? Because while, while you think, right, RAM is cheap, but the RAM that, sorry, the, the, the RAM sticks that, you know, are, are stuck into a server, right? Those servers are not cheap, right? The whole system isn't cheap. Yeah. So, so they're, they were running into a problem where they're trying to receive, achieve a certain amount of density and Java wasn't cutting it right now. Yeah. Quarkus does solve that problem, which is why there were, you know, customers I talked to were really interested in Quarkus. So I think it just depends on, um, on the, on the organization that you're working with. The, other thing that's becoming interesting is I'm seeing fewer large Kubernetes clusters and more smaller ones. Yeah. Um, I think part of that's because people are still stuck on, well, this is our dev cluster. This is our <laughs> test cluster. This is our prod cluster. You don't have to do that, right? You could set aside nodes within your cluster to do various things. Um, but, you know, even production clusters tend to be maybe a little bit smaller. And so, that cost is kind of multiplied because there's still overhead with running a cluster, right? Yeah, but um, uh, but it is easier to set up. So I'm in in a startup. We started with an OpenShift cluster with I think three worker nodes and two masters. And if you create you know larger clusters, it is uh, harder to scale up uh, to set up because uh, you know the whole setup is uh, is crazier. Yeah, but I mean, my point goes back to the cost of the RAM becomes, you know a problem every time you have to deploy a new server that yeah. that RAM has to be added to, right? So so the customers I've, I've been talking to are basically saying we need to find a way to reduce the amount of RAM um, for our, our Java stuff, right? And we're just going to have to look, uh, you know, to something else, right? Um, and so, that you know, uh, they go off and do these evaluations. Now, Vertex is an exception, right? Um, Vertex is actually quite efficient out of the box, but uh, um, on stage, what I did, I cross-compiled Quarky to a native kernel. As I remember, it took as a, the the amount of native RAM was, I think, it was it was tiny. So it, it was not a huge difference, you know, between Quarky and and I would say bare metal Quarkus. So in on on the on the JVM side, yes, there was a little bit of difference. But my point is, you know. Um, if you really are into this optimization, then you are absolutely right. You should start with, with bare metal, you know, uh, Quarkus, and add whatever you really need. But this is more like an expert pro uh, project, so this wouldn't fly in my world. So, what what uh, mm -hmm. my clients would like to have, you know, out of the box experience. Okay, something like Ruby on Rails, you know, for the backend. So this is why 
Um, right. I still, you know, have something to do with Java E, so there's enough interest because you download the server and you're ready to go. So, and and you shouldn't mm -hmm. ast uh, um, un underestimate, you know, the productivity from day one if all developers can do something and, and are productive. This is actually already great. And if uh, if it becomes too complicated and you will save some, you know, some, some, some hardware with it, then this is uh, less interesting for mainstream projects. But you are absolutely right. In one big data project, we're already uh, looking for Quarkus Bear. So we will probably use even just the JAXRS as a load balancer. So like, you know, the data ingestion. And behind, uh, behind Quarkus, we will get uh, typical whiteflies. But at, you know, scale out, uh, scale, sc uh, scale up and down. So very fast, you know, load balancers. We will probably go with plain Quarkus, not Quarky, with just JAXRS. But this is a very specific use case. So what, what, where, where I think, uh, you know, the one thing we haven't talked about, and I know we're getting long, we're like long on time here, um, is, you know, microprofile support. So the interesting thing I see about Quarkus is, you know, it, it gets back to the fact that you don't want to innovate within a standards organization, um, right? Or you'll end up with EJB2. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, you know that's kind of the canonical example that that people use, and and so really I, I see Quarkus as a way to do some innovations outside of a standards org. Um, one example is Panache, and for people that don't know, um, Quark, Panache and Quarkus is it's basically a a framework that adds a, an additional layer of usability on top of um, Hibernate or right or, or JPA. Mm -hmm. So it makes things really simple. Um, so, you know, we're, 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 we have this project within Quarkus, and I could see potentially someday that might get rolled into, you know, either MicroProfile or Jakarta EE or whatever, yeah. right? But there has to be some place where all of this innovation happens, um, and that's where I, I see Quarkus doing that. Um, in some sense, I'm a little worried about even supporting MicroProfile, which, which we do, right? Um, because how do, you, how do you innovate without breaking? Sometimes, right? Sometimes you want to intentionally want to break things to try and innovate, but you know, can you really break the specs that you support? In, you know, up this is upstream. Right? I'm not talking product, for example. Um, but um, you know, how do you break things with the intent of improving them? Yeah. Um, so, but, but the added you know, value—that's a challenge. But. but the added value should be obvious, you know. If you are breaking things, and the added value is obvious, for instance, like you say, we are not supporting you know, the full CDI. But uh, you know the yes. advantages you can you you get you know the native compilation out of the box. This is what I understand. But if you will tell me yep. you know we don't have at eject rather than Red Hat eject, you know then say okay uh, why that? I mean what's why at inject was not good enough? You know because it's just an annotation. So if the added value is clear, then you can go for it. And also you can just you know use the panache uh, extension or deactivate that as your choice. It's not like then. Your whole system becomes depending on uh, panache. This was your, you know, your choice to to do that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I, I, I spend most of my time, or not most, I mean, I spend a lot of time on on Quarkus, um, and I spend a lot of time still on MicroProfile. Um, that's the one thing we really haven't talked about that I do a lot of. Mm -hmm. um, so I was one of you know, the MicroProfile co-founders, so kind of a day zero, even day negative one. Um, I think we were trying to... Day to negative one, we had actually the the, the 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 phone call, you remember? 
that, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that, that was among, yeah, day negative one. Um, yeah. having those discussions, talking to people, um, you know, pulling people on board with the idea. Um, you know, so I, I still, you know, Kevin and Sutter, Kevin Sutter and I kind of have our roles. Um, we're, we're co-leads, but that doesn't really mean anything in the Eclipse Foundation. Um, all it really means is that we just kind of, you know, we, we try and get the releases out to do the mechanics. Kevin does most of that. Um, the things that I tend to think about are, um, we have a growing pains discussion going on. We're growing quite fast. So what processes might we have to put in place? And MicroProfile does not like processes, um, as a community. So we're trying to find, you know, always trying to find the right balance with that. Um, so, you know, what are we going to do about, you know, what, what's our stance on the Java X namespace issue? We don't have one. Um, in fact, I, I should get that pushed out, um, as a blog post. So we, 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 we collaborate around all the stuff, right. As a community. So I just sometimes initiate the discussion. Um, and then we collaborate around the growing pains. We collaborate around the, you know, the Java X namespace thing about how we want to communicate it externally. Yeah. But it usually takes someone to kind of manage that. Um, so I tend to do that. Whereas you got, you know, a, a ton of people, both community and, and, you know, through vendors working on specs and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I do much less spec work. So you are, we are really late. So uh, there's uh, my suggestion. Um, one final question, and then uh, we should uh, meet in a few weeks and just discuss exclusively Quarkus again with MicroProfile, if you like, without introduction. Yeah. So we covered all the refrigerators already. So the next time, you know, just about Quarkus, MicroProfile, and backend. So the final question is, JavaX namespace, uh, are you for a clear cut or incremental, <laughs> or incremental migration? So what's your personal thoughts? Boy, I'll tell you, um, I started out as a clean cut kind of person, right? Just let, let, let's just cut it, let's just cut it now and just move forward. Yeah. But I've been changing my mind, ah, right? Um, a okay. bit wondering, right? There's, there's just ton of dependencies out there that don't have this, right? Um, you know, what's going to be the ramifications and the impact of everything else in the, you know, it's not just Java EE that's impacted, right? It's like, anything that uses servlet becomes impacted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, okay, maybe app servers can easily adapt based on some strategy that we take. Um, but maybe, you know, think about all these other things that aren't necessarily app servers, right? And now think about that across all the specs. Mm -hmm. So I've been warming up to the idea of doing things incrementally. Um, okay. And it was actually someone from IBM who said, uh, I, I can't remember, it wasn't Kevin, but Kevin kind of pointed it out, um, the... the email to the platform dev alias where he basically said, you know, with, if you go clean cut, you, you can't back out of it. Right. If you do an incremental, you could always fast forward to clean cut. If you, yeah. if you find it, it works better. And that statement, that, that single statement is kind of like, yeah, you know, that's, that's a good point. Yes. So, true. For, anyway. for, for marketing perspective, it would be, I think the incremental is like, you know, the constant mess and with a clean cut is like, you know, we do it once and at least you are, we know that there are no more copyright issues and we have our own namespace, right? This is the only thing. Yeah. There's, 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 there's pros and cons on both sides. Yeah. And I've been, I've been warming up to the incremental, I guess. 
Okay, so let's see. I will ping you in four to six weeks, and we can we should proceed from from there. So and uh, there you now, go. where where people can find you on the internet and Red Hat and um, so at Jay Klingen, um, I do a lot of Quarkus right now, um, and uh, JohnKlingen.com is my personal blog running on my server behind me here. Um, I don't really blog there much, but when I do, it, it tends to be like more deep thinking kind of stuff like Jakarta EE or Java EE um, stuff. So I haven't really put much there in a while. Okay. So at Jay Klingen, I, I blog or, or tweet almost daily okay. right now. So then thank you and really hear you in a few weeks if you have time. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Bye.